comes on me and I'm writing, all of a sudden it starts getting lighter outside and I realize it's daylight and I've written all night. But that's, that's part of the uh, thing of having a passion. <clears throat> and I do carry a passion for the Hebraic foundations of the Christian faith and for educating the church in these important resources and important truths that are foundational to our Christian faith. And uh, so this for me is a 24-7 job that I've been called into and I've carried it with a passion now for 45 years. I've been in ministry for 45 years. The reason I look so young right now is because I started preaching when I was three years old. I actually didn't start preaching when I was three years old, but my parents, who were godly uh, ministers in the gospel, both of them, I, I tell people my father was a minister for 60 years, 65 years, my grandfather for 50 years before him, my great-grandfather for 60 years before him, and my great-great-grandfather for 50 years before him, so I am the victim of a generational blessing. <laughs> and I have a long list of things that I've never done because I had a praying mother and a strict dad uh, that lived their faith. But uh, <clears throat> at any rate, uh, thank God for that godly heritage and for what God has done for us. But when I was three years old, my parents had me stand up in front of the church on a little uh, stool like that and recite the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And by the time I was four, they had me reading the Bible. So uh, I guess I can thank God that they had that uh, passion to uh, introduce me into the, the, the scriptures of Israel and to be able to uh, be passionate about those things. And that's all I can remember all of my life. I tell people I've been in church all my life. As a matter of fact, I was in church virtually every day for nine months before I was born. <clears throat> but it's a good heritage, thank God. I don't miss anything. Uh, David said there's a reward for the righteous. And thank God for that because I don't miss anything that I've, I didn't get involved in in, uh, in the world uh, because I don't have to worry about a lot of those uh, consequences of having done this or that or the other. Thank God for it. Well, just for those of you who do not know, uh, my wife and I have been married for 40 years. Her name's Pat. She wanted to be here, but we have so many other activities planned. She felt she needed a little time to make preparations for those. We'll be taking a month <clears throat> coming up in March to go to uh, Europe and then on down to Indonesia and uh, doing a conference in Malaysia for the uh, Anglican Church on the Jewish roots a whole weekend. Matter of fact, they've got me teaching, I think, about ten times in two and a half, two days and preaching twice on Sunday in the largest Anglican church in Malaysia. And so we're looking forward to that. And then we go from there on to... Uh, to uh, New Zealand where we'll be doing a large conference for the Asia-Pacific Co Consultation on Discipleship in which I'll be teaching about the Hebraic foundations of Christian discipleship. I did the same similar thing in uh, Colombo, Sri Lanka two years ago on the keynote uh, program of the opening night of that conference and after that they had to keep the doors closed in the workshops that were coming in for people to hear because they were so excited about the Jewish roots uh, that they were exceeding the total. Had people sitting in the floor and all around and the fire marshal said you can't put any more people in this room. So the people are excited. They're, they're, they're passionate about learning about this truth. So we've got a lot of things going and we praise God for that. We have three sons that love the Lord. Our oldest son is a flight controller for NASA. Our second son runs a chemical plant for Dow Chemical Company. 
And our youngest son was just recently taken off my payroll, thank God, hallelujah, <laughs> and uh, became gainfully employed. Uh, he finished his doctorate in pharmacy, and he now runs a pediatric pharmacy in one of the large hospitals. And so we thank God for the heritage, thank God for being able to pass it on to our children, but uh, more than that, we thank God that we have the opportunity of being in relationship with our extended family, and let me tell you and assure you that the men and women that are involved in this movement, uh, in this community of the restoration of the Hebraic foundations of our faith are our family, really, literally true. All of these men uh, that you've heard during this conference, uh, uh, Al and Tommy Cooper, who are so uh, mightily used of God in this community, in this area, not only here but all around the world by way of satellite and by way of the Internet, uh, these are our family, and uh, we count it very important in our lives to be very close to these people and to uh, be able to joke with one another and uh, just share the camaraderie and the uh, fraternity and the collegiality of our relationship with one another. It's just, it's just an amazing relationship, and we praise God for that. We thank God for Jim Jackson. I don't know of a person in the whole body of Christ who more fits the description of a servant leader than Jim Jackson. He really loves God's people, and he is a servant extraordinaire. <clears throat> and he does everything he does with such a high level of excellence, and we've respected that for these 30-odd years that we've been in relationship with Jim as well. And we praise God for that. Well, you've seen the results of this conference. How many of you have been blessed by having been here? How many of you plan to go tell somebody else how much blessing you got? All right. That's our best advertising is word of mouth, personal testimony, personal witness. Let me share with you before I begin to minister again about Restore Magazine. We have a few copies left. Uh, most of them are gone now, but if you would like to subscribe to Restore, just do so by filling out one of these little green cards and giving it to us. I'll be out here during the break, and if you uh, have run out of money you want to use a credit card, you see me, and I'll make things work for you to, to use your credit card. We take your credit cards, and we promise you that we will use them very wisely and efficiently. <laughs> For those of you who would like to be involved in our ministry on an ongoing basis, get one of these brochures. It's called the Golden Key. We have Golden Key partners around the world, and those are ones who help support our ministry and who also receive benefits, including a monthly teaching uh, tape and other things, a subscription to Restore Magazine. Tommy Cooper's been one of my Golden Key partners forever, haven't you, Tommy? Praise God for that. She's been a great, solid support and encouragement for us for many, many years. And uh, then finally, I want to mention about the college that the Lord is helping us to initiate. Uh, we felt that the, the Lord was putting this on us about three and a half to four years ago, and we began to talk about it. And um, uh, I, I literally was dragged, leaving black heel marks on the pavement behind me, but God dragged me into this. I did, really didn't want to do this. I made every effort that was possible to present someone else's body a living sacrifice. <clears throat> but uh, the Lord kept serving the ball back over in my court. And finally I gave up and said, okay, well, if I have to do this, I have to do it. And so the Lord has helped us to put together a team of uh, outstanding scholars and leaders and uh, business leaders, uh, uh, technicians, and everything else. But we're creating a totally new Christian Bible college 
in which the entire curriculum will be rooted in the Hebraic foundations of the Christian faith. We're going to... <clears throat> Every course is being developed fresh. And as a result of that, we're having to write virtually all the textbooks because we can't go to the shelves of the seminaries and find textbooks that teach the Hebraic foundations of the Christian faith. So we're doing that. We're bypassing the centuries of Hellenization and Latinization and going back to the original foundations. You know, we're finding our way back home. I have a message I give on finding our way back home. Well, if you're looking to find your way back home, why would you want to stop in Canterbury or Rome or Athens or Antioch? Why not just go all the way back to Jerusalem where, we, where it all began? And that's what we're doing. So get a copy of this brochure. And more than that, the website for the college is on the back of the brochure. It's www.hebraiccenter.com. Dot org, And if you'll go to that, you can see the development up to this stage. And within about two weeks, we will have a demonstration online of the virtual classroom for Hebraic Heritage Christian College. And it will show you exactly how a classroom will operate. And we're very excited about that. I do have also the very first book that we've published by Hebraic Heritage Press. This is the college press. And this is a book called Christian Jewish Dialogue. And if you've ever wanted to know how to communicate with the Jewish people, how to be in relationship with them in a mutual supportive, mutually supportive uh, attitude and, and communicating and building bridges, then this, I want to tell you, is the greatest book that I've ever read. And I helped to do the editing on it. But it's by our dear friend, uh, the Reverend Dr. Isaac Rottenberg, who was a former executive with the Dutch Reformed Churches in America and a leader in the World Council of Churches and uh, the head of the National Leadership Conference for Israel for many, many years, a very solid supporter of Israel. As a matter of fact, uh, what got him fired from his denominational position is when he had the audacity to run a full-page ad in the New York Times uh, supporting Israel. <clears throat> well, anyway... Uh, get a copy of that book. I encourage you to do that because uh, it is a great book. It'll be one of the textbooks for one of the courses that we're producing for Hebraic Heritage Christian College. So we ask your prayers for us as we continue in this endeavor. Uh, it's bigger than any one of us individually, and it's far bigger than all of us collectively, and only God can pull it off, believe me. And so we're totally dependent upon Him and trusting in Him uh, step by step, day by day, to uh, rain down manna every day except Shabbat so that we can keep moving forward uh, with this program and this project. Well, I want to share with you a message this morning about the family of God, <clears throat> the family of God. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles with me to the first epistle of John, chapter 3. And I'll read verses 1 and 2 as part of my text. And then I'll also go to Romans chapter 4, and we, uh, chapter 9, I'm sorry, and we'll read verse 4. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then again from Romans 9, verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption of children and the glory 
and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Father, we ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit as we open our hearts to speak and to hear your word. May this collective exercise between speaker and hearer be anointed so that we will hear your voice with great clarity and that you will give us insight into your purposes and into your design for our lives and then give us the courage to walk in that in which you have commissioned us. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. The family of God. I have always loved this passage from 1 John 3. I get really emotional when I think about it. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We don't know altogether what we're going to be, but we know that when He appears, we're going to be like Him. What a promise. What an inheritance. What a patrimony that we are called the children of God. And then when I look at this litany that Paul delivers in Romans chapter 9 regarding Israel, the children of Israel who were the chosen people of God, who still are the chosen people of God, and Paul goes on further in this part of the book of Romans to tell us that we who are Gentiles have become grafted into that family tree and we also have become the children of God. But Paul gives us a litany of so many things that are so important to God's chosen people, including the people according to the flesh and those who are grafted in into the family of God. But it's interesting to me that in all this litany of important things that he lists, the one that heads the list is the adoption of children. The adoption. He continues to talk about the glory, the Shekinah, the presence, the glory of God's presence manifest among his people. He talks about the covenants, and certainly the covenantal relationship is so vital and so important between God and his people. Then he continues to talk about the giving of the Torah. And the Torah is very important. It's God's instruction to his children to keep us in the way that God has designed for us where there is safety and security. Then he speaks of the service of God, the worship, the adoration, the system of worship and praise and service to the Almighty God. Then he talks about the promises, and I thank God for all the promises because God says, Through Paul, if you are Abraham's children, then you are heirs according to the promises. And we are Abraham's children because we belong to the Messiah. 
That's the only criterion for being Abraham's children if you belong to the Messiah. Thank God we belong to him. But it's very easy for us to lapse into moving things that are down on this list up to the top of the list. And there are those who do that, some who get so wrapped up in the glory and that's all they want to dwell in is the realm of the glory and the passion and the face-to-face with God. And I'm going to tell you, you can only stay face-to-face with God for so long because you'll be like Daniel. You'll wake up and find yourself kind of sick a little bit because God's presence is so awesome and there's such a, an overflowing power of His presence that when He comes into direct contact with us, we are overwhelmed. And if God ever chose to reveal all of His glory to us, we would be totally short-circuited. We would blow all the fuses. Our mind would be blown, literally. But thank God He does come into relationship with us. Then there are those who become so enamored of the giving of the Torah that somehow they become Torah-centric. And you go to one of their meetings and you hear Torah, Torah, Torah. (laughs) One would think he was watching a movie about Pearl Harbor or something. Torah, Torah, Torah. Well, I have a great love for the Torah. And I understand the Torah. That it's not some overbearing burden of legalistic restraints or a requirement for punctilious observance of ritualism. It rather is the instruction of a loving father to his children to encourage them to walk in his way where there's safety and there's security. It is the means by which God equips the man or woman of God to every good work so that we are working out the faith that has been generated in our hearts by the Word of God. And I'm excited about that. But when I come into an assembly of the people of God, I prefer to hear Jesus, Jesus, Jesus more than I do Torah, Torah, Torah. And the reason I do that is because I know that Jesus is the living Torah. If John were writing his gospel to those Within the Jewish community, he could well have said, in the beginning was the Torah, and the Torah was with God, and the Torah was God, but the Torah was made flesh and dwelt among us, and his name was Yeshua, God manifest in the flesh. The church must ever be Christocentric. Prior to Calvary, prior to the cross, God's people were Torah-centric. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself was Torah-centric. He was born of woman, born under the Torah. And everything he did was in fulfillment of the Torah and its commandments. As a matter of fact, we have his own testimony when Jesus said that I have kept my Father's commandments. And beyond that, we know that Jesus kept every single commandment of the Torah in perfection. Otherwise, he would have been a sinner For John tells us that sin is the transgression of the Torah or the law of God. So we know Jesus was without sin, so therefore he was observant of every precept of the Torah. 
But the moment his blood was shed upon the cross of Calvary, the faith of the living God became forever after Christocentric. Focused solely in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I praise God for that. So we should maintain priorities. Keep ourselves in balance. All of these things that Paul mentions are so vital and important to us. How wonderful they are. But the one that heads the list is the adoption of children. And God says this pertains to Israel as well. Do you know that Israel was adopted into the family of God? They weren't natural born children of God. Abraham was adopted into the family of God. Isaac was adopted into the family of God. Jacob and all the subsequent Israelites were adopted into the family of God. Why is that? Because there is only one begotten Son of God. The only begotten Son of God is Jesus himself. And he's the one who was generated from the bosom of the Father in eternity past. At the moment at which God said, let there be light. When God said, the word came issuing forth from him and was begotten from the bosom of the Father. Well, God is a family God. How many of you are glad you've got a heavenly Father? Hallelujah. God is a family God. God is a community God. This is important for us to understand. <clears throat> One of the great statements in prayer from the Jewish community is Avinu Malkenu, and in that order, our Father, our King. Yes, He is the King of the kingdom of God, of the dominion and the rule of God over all the universe. But he is also more important than that and before that in primacy because he is our father. You see, God is not looked upon by the Jewish people so much as the God of the universe as he is of the, as the God who is the father of his people who is in relationship to the community of Israel. He is the God of the covenant in relationship with Israel. So we see in Luke chapter 3 verse 38 that Adam is called the son of God. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, Israel, my son, my firstborn, God calls all of Israel his children, his firstborn. And then we find these wonderful statements that are made. One in Matthew chapter 17 verse 5 where God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says again, This is my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee. When he brought the firstborn or the first begotten into the world, he was called the Son of God when he was brought into the world by the Virgin Mary. He was called the Son of God at his baptism. He was called the Son of God at his transfiguration. And again, he was called the Son of God at his resurrection. Thank God because he is the Son of God. And then he says in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12, To as many as received him gave he power to become the children of God. Thank God we are the children of God. Now we are the children of God because we have been begotten 
unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been begotten by the word of God. There is something unique about our relationship with the living God. We have been begotten by the word of God and come into relationship of adoption into the family of the Father because we've been begotten by the Son. We've been begotten by the Word of God. We've come into relationship with the living God. It is the resurrection of Jesus that makes baptism efficacious and imputable to the believer as sonship, as family relationship. Thank God for the resurrection of Jesus. If it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus, we'd still be in our sins. We wouldn't be children of the living God. He was delivered for our offenses, but He was raised again for our justification. So it's the resurrection that uniquely makes us sons of God. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, the Scripture tells us that Jesus was proclaimed to be the Son of God in His resurrection. This day have I begotten you. And so it is that when we participate in the resurrection of Jesus, when we are buried with Him in baptism and we raise again to the newness of life, that's the moment at which we become the children of God, adopted into God's family. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 through 6 says, Because we are His children, God sends forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, in us to cry, Abba, Father. This very personal word, like Papacito, like Daddy, Abba, Abba. We can be so intimate with this Father because the Spirit of His only begotten Son is resident within us. And we can address him with this intimate term that Jesus used when he spoke to his father always calling him father Abba aren't you glad that God does that the spirit of God in us makes us the children of God it makes us the family of God I want to underscore the importance of our recognizing ourselves as a family, as an extended family, if you please. Oh, in our Western way of looking thing at things, we get involved in this rugged individualism. And we look at ourselves that we are the people of liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's part of our inheritance our patrimony as citizens of the United States. And thank God for the liberty that we have in this great nation. But we can overemphasize our individuality in the body of Messiah to the extent that we don't recognize the importance of our connectivity to our fellow brothers and sisters within the Messiah. We are family, we're brothers and sisters. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. We are children of God because God has adopted every one of us. And whether you like it or not, 
the person seated next to you is your brother and your sister. You may not like the way they look. You may not like the way they act. But if they're a child of God and you're a child of God, you have no choice in the matter. What you're responsible to do is to embrace your brothers and your sisters. The unity that we have in community is all surrounds one phrase of Scripture. And that phrase is, Our Father. Isn't it interesting that the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray was in the perfect context of all the prayers of Israel where one rabbi said any prayer that is not offered in the name of all of Israel is no prayer at all. So therefore the prayers are always prayed in the first person plural. And so it is that the disciples' prayer, which we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, is prayed in the first person plural. Our Father, not my Father, our Father. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. You see that? It's in the phrase, our Father. And I want to suggest to you that all the institutional, all the theological, all the ethnic, all the social, all the economic, and all the linguistic forces and distinctives melt in the face of the filial consciousness that is expressed in this one phrase. Our Father. If we could realize that He is our Father, not my Father, our Father, then all of these divisions that have been a part of the Christian scene would melt away. And we would be one. We would not be uniform because God is not looking for uniformity. As a matter of fact, God is looking for pluriformity. If God were looking for uniformity, every snowflake would be exactly identical to every other one. But if God cannot make two snowflakes alike, what makes us think He ought to make two Christians alike? But you see, in Christianity, we have tried to force the issue through creedalism to make everybody alike. And if you weren't exactly alike and said exactly the same thing, subscribe to our creed, then we would excoriate anathematize and excommunicate you and we'd do some other nasty stuff to you too (laughs) we might even kill you in the name of the Lord and that's been done in history my 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 father help us we have been a dysfunctional family have we not but God is asking us to come into the unity of the spirit not a spirit of unity I want to encourage you never work in the church for a spirit of unity always work as Paul said for the unity of which the Holy Spirit is the agent for only the Holy Spirit can produce unity among human beings you can have a spirit of unity on a baseball team you can have a spirit of unity in a labor union you can even have a spirit of unity for a Two or three seconds in a, in a political party. <clears throat> but you can't have a spirit of unity. You can't have the unity of the spirit unless the Holy Spirit is the agent. So the family of the kingdom is a convention for divine self-disclosure. 
God Himself has chosen to disclose Himself in the context of community, not in the context of individuality. Only one person fully bore the image of the living God, the express image of His person, and that was Jesus Himself, because He was God. He was co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial with the Father, so therefore He could say, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, He left something on the earth to represent Him and to represent the Father on the earth, and this was the body of the Messiah, the body of Christ. So it is that the body of Christ is to be collectively imaging the image of the invisible God so that the world can see that God is real. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. We need that imaging of God in the earth. God's image, the imaging of God is primarily a relational concept. The image of God is primarily, is not primarily an individual expression, but it's a corporate or social reality present among and in relationship in a community. I'm going to explain that to you. I believe that the creation narratives reveal the communal nature of the divine image. God Himself is a community. Think about it now. God, there is one being of substance in God. God is one. That is the cornerstone of all biblical faith. Judaism and Christianity is anchored on the cornerstone of monotheism. One God. There are not gods many, there is only one God. So there is one being of substance. But through the revelation and manifestation of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have come to understand that that one being of substance is manifest in three personalities, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that these three persons are one, not with the Hebrew word for singularity, but the Hebrew one for composite unity, echad. They are echad. They are echad because they are co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal. So there is no hierarchy within God. There is no subordinationism within God. The reason why the Son follows the Father's bidding is because the Son is co-equal with the Father. And since there is co-equality, there is mutuality, then one can submit oneself to the other in perfect freedom of his own personal and will. And that's what God has done for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The invisible God whom the Scripture says no man has ever seen at any time nor can see has chosen to disclose himself through the person of the Word and the person of the Holy Spirit. 
He's caused us to understand Himself through the Word, and He's caused him, him to, us to experience Him through the Holy Spirit. Thank God. Three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when God said, let us, the three in one, make humanity in our own image, in our own likeness, what did God do? He created two in one. Why didn't he create three in one? Because he wasn't trying to create another God. He was just trying to create an image, a manifestation of God. So he created two in one. And everything that was needed for subsequent gender-specific existence was present at the moment that God formed Ha'adam from Ha'adama. From the moment he formed the earthling from the earth. From the moment he formed the human from the humus. Everything was there that was needed. There was two in one. And then God separated the two in one and made two apart. But his design in making two apart was so that there would be relationship and he could bring them back together and again the two would become one. So in marriage, there are two human beings standing there as far as our eyes are concerned, but in God's sight, there is oneness. This is the image of the living God. By the way, God didn't create a male human person. If he had, then that would have made God male. He created humanity, Ha-Adam. As a matter of fact, how many of you know what Eve's name was to begin with? Read Genesis 5.1. God created man and male and female, created he them, and he called their name Ha-Adam. So Eve's name, before she was called Hava, the mother of all living, her name was Adam, and it wasn't Mrs. Adam either. It was just Adam, Ha-Adam. Now that may shake you up a little bit in your theology, but just go think about that a bit. I want you to know in the beginning of creation, there was absolute, total equality between male and female. There was no subordinationism. There was no inferiority in the human being that was called woman by the man. Now, if that upsets your apple cart, then let it be upset. The only reason we have submission, subordination, feelings that somehow females are inferior to males is because sin came into the world. And God himself said, because you have sinned, now to the woman your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. And we can tell the degree to which someone has come into strong relationship with the living God as to the degree to which they go back to the way it was in the beginning. Because God said through Jesus regarding divorce, in the beginning it was not so. How many of you think we might ought to go back to the beginning if we want to get it right? But the idea is the, 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 the relationship, the equality. God said, let us make man in our own image. And so, God made two who were co-equal, 
consubstantial and co-mortal, but with the opportunity to partake of the tree of life and live forever. You see the whole idea? God didn't make the woman from another substance. He didn't make two piles of dirt, make one a man, one a woman. Because if he had, he might not have got the right amount of selenium out of the other pile, and it would have been inferior to the first pile. No, he made it all out of the same substance, consubstantial. So each person participates in the image of God only in the context of life in community with one another. That's why we have to be a community. Why we're not just a bunch of scattered out individuals, isolated, and all of us withdrawing into our cloistered environment and there to seek some kind of existential moment with the divine or to meditate and seek to come in contact with the God within. Our understanding of God and our relationship with God is dependent upon our interconnectivity as community and as family of God. We are the children of God, plural. And we must have relationship with one another. We must have connectivity. And I want to submit to you that in order for us to have true connectivity, we must have mutuality. We must have equality. That's one of the things that I respect so much about the the ones that God has positioned to bring leadership into the community that is being birthed to restore the Hebraic foundations of the Christian faith. There are no big I's and no little U's. We're all equal. And there's a reason for that because in rabbinic tradition there is a statement that says if two or more people come and sit down to study Torah together, if they consider themselves to be equal, the Shekinah is present. If, however, one in the group asserts his or her primacy over the rest of the group, then the Shekinah is not present. Whoa, would it be wonderful if the church had learned that lesson and understood it all of these years that we come before God as absolute equals. There are no big I's and no little U's. There is no exalted clergy and there is no debased laity. All of us are all laypersons, and all of us are all ministers. We just have different functions of ministry, and no one of those functions is more important than the other function. As a matter of fact, some that seem to be lesser of importance are more important because they're more vital to the health and the existence of the body. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12? So God is a community of love. We need to learn to understand that community is important for us. That we can't isolate ourselves. That we have to be in relationship with one another. And do you know that it's absolutely easy for us to fulfill the instruction of Paul where he says, submit yourselves one to another out of respect for God Oh, we men like the next verse where it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. But the only way a wife can submit herself to her husband is for the husband and wife to be submitted one to another out of respect for God first. 
So you've got to get the first verse right, then you can get the second one in its proper order. And this is true in relationship with the body of Christ. We can submit ourselves to one another. We can submit ourselves to leadership. We can obey those who have rule over us within the body when we understand that we have mutuality and that we are all equal and that some just have a function to fulfill that they're called of God to do. We can voluntarily submit ourselves because our will is not trampled on by some hierarchically imposed scheme that forces us to submit to an office and not to a gift. You see, it's no problem to submit to a gift that God has put in someone's life. When we recognize the gifting, the anointing, the calling of God, we can submit to that as long as that person is not exalted to try to promote himself as being some superior person or some glorious hierarchy. You know what that is? That's the spirit of idolatry. To try to put a person on a pedestal as though that person has some higher holiness or some higher state of quality before God. No, we're all the children of God. And we're all on the same plane before God. And when we try to put somebody up as higher than all the rest of us, we have created a demigod. We have become engaged in idolatry. We need to be careful. Only God gets the glory. Isn't that what he said? I'm a jealous God and my glory will I not give to another. So we need to recognize this. This, is, this should become a cardinal rule of understanding within the movement and within the community that God is restoring to bring the Hebraic foundations of the faith back to the church that we are an equal people. We stand before God in absolute equality. That's why there are no prima donnas in this this movement. We are the people of God, the men of God, the women of God that God has given insight and understanding and we share it freely and, and free to God's people and we're in relationship, we're communicating, we rub elbows, we talk, we communicate. We're with the people. We're the shepherds that are in the midst of the sheep. Thank God that we're able to have that relationship. We don't go hide in our motel room as quick as we get off the podium. We stand here and answer your questions. And we shake your hand and we hug your necks because we love you. You are our brothers. You are our sisters. You are our equals. Oh, hallelujah. The first thing that God said about Adam when he created him, for the first time there was something about the creation that was not good, low tove. What was it? That man should be alone. I want to tell you, it's not good for us to be alone. The divisions that have been in the body of Christ have kept us separated, and we've been alone. And we've loved being alone. We've erected towering stockades around ourselves from behind which we could hurl our proof texts at one another assaulting one another in the name of the Lord. We've had hierarchies established for domination and submission. We've had the divisions within the body of Christ that were gender-based. All you women, make sure you stay in the woman's place. And everybody knows a woman's place is in the mall. 
uh, we bought into this idea from Neoplatonism that the proper place for women is barefoot and pregnant and in the home. No opportunity for ministry or service. I want to suggest to you ladies that you need to stop sitting in your prayer closet praying for a God to send a man to do what he's called you to do. I'm talking about equality in the body of Christ now. You hear what I'm saying? We've had gender-based divisions. We've had racially-based divisions. It's a sad testimony that the most segregated moment in American society is between 11 and 12 on Sunday morning. Racially divisions. We've had social divisions. We've had socioeconomic biases and divisions. But I believe God is now in the process of bringing about a restoration of an ecclesiology of community. Real community. You know what community is? It's common unity. Hallelujah. Unity in the body of Christ. When we come to realize that the foundations of the church were in the synagogue and not in the Roman governmental system, we'll come to realize the kind of relationship that we should have one with another. Community based. The synagogal movement was nothing more than an extended family. It originated in Babylon when the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people were carried captive and they, for a while they sat down there and said, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? And they hung their harps on the, on the willows by the river Kibar and said, we can't worship God in this circumstances, but I'll tell you when God's inside of you, He's coming out whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter how bad your circumstances are, the worship of God is going to spring out of your heart. So they began to worship God in the context of their own families. And then the family started extending and getting together in larger family communities sort of environments and they began to worship God and that was the birth of the synagogal movement. And we have that same exact movement in the earliest church. No difference. Jesus went to the synagogue as his custom was. I saw something in a uh, denominational uh, publication, Sunday school publication for children. Had a picture of a little boy going up to this nice, beautiful church building. It said Jesus was a good Christian boy who went to church every Sunday morning. To which I said, wrong, wrong, wrong. He wasn't a good Christian boy, he was a good Jewish boy. And he didn't go to church, he went to synagogue. And he didn't go on Sunday, he went on Shabbat. Whoa. He wasn't trying to separate himself from his family. He continued in the context of that family. But that family was the meeting of the people was a community. You see, the problem with Christianity, we've tried hard, real hard, to birth community out of congregation, out of the worship experience. And we've made the worship experience a performance-based, audience-based experience in which there is no participation. Very little participation in the pews. But you can't birth community out of congregation. You've got to birth congregation out of community. We need to turn it all the way around. And that's why they continued steadfast in the apostles' teaching because the synagogue was a bait midrash, a place of teaching and study. That's why they continued steadfast in the apostles' fellowship and breaking of bread because the synagogue was a bait knesset, 
a house of meeting, a house of fellowship, a community center, if you please. And that's why they continued steadfast in prayers, because the synagogue was a bait tefillah, a house of prayer for all people. And when they continued in that synagogal model, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Why? Because they were coming into a community. I want to suggest to you that Christian faith is best conveyed from person to person in the context of community, in the context of relationship. People will come to receive the gospel, the good news, more effectively when you come into relationship with them than they will from you standing on a street corner yelling at them. Or handing them some kind of an acerbic broadside piece of literature or something of that nature. When you come into relationship with people, the Christian faith is designed to be a community. It's a community of laterality and mutuality. And when we come to understand this, that we are laterally accountable to one another, we're laterally connected to one another, then we come to understand what real accountability is all about. I live the life I live because I have respect for the men and women that I am laterally connected with, not because I'm in fear of a hierarch who somehow is going to excommunicate me. It's because I love my brothers, I love my sisters, and I honor them, and I want them to respect me and honor me, so therefore I live the life I live of accountability and ethical standards because I'm connected with all these great men and women of God. We're a part of God's family tree. We're a part of God's nation, the commonwealth of Israel. Thank God. We are the children of God. What manner of love. It's unfathomable. No one can understand it. I'm a pretty good wordsmith myself, but I just... I get the stammering lips when I start trying to describe the love of God. I have no way of vocalizing the love that God has had for us. Behold what manner of love the Father has had for us, that we should be called the children of God. And we do not know what we shall be like, but we know when He shall appear. We will be like Him. We will have a glorious body like His glorious body, for we will see Him as He is. Father, thank You because You have adopted us into Your family, and therefore we can say, Abba, Father. Fill us with all of Your spiritual grace and help us to be loving and profitable children to you and to your kingdom. May your kingdom break forth in our lives personally. And may your kingdom continue to break forth in the earth until that day that we see our Lord and Savior Messiah coming in the clouds of glory. And may he look upon each of us and say unto us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. To that same Lord be glory, both now and forever, in the church, world without end. Amen. Amen.